Adam, the floor is yours. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes. Well, let me thank everyone for joining us this morning. Uh, and let me thank Sailor Petrie for the invitation to do this. I, to be honest, uh, didn't really want to do this. Uh, but uh, when Taylor uh, accepted the job to be the new editor of Dialogue, I promised that I would do what I could uh, to help him. Uh, and he invited and I, I said yes. So here I am and hopefully I can offer something helpful and interesting uh, to all of you. Uh, let me thank uh, as well uh, Christian and Rebecca and Michael for their help. Uh, special thanks here this morning uh, to my mother for giving birth to me and raising me and loving me and making all of this possible. Uh, Patrick, uh, Patrick Mason had suggested to me that uh, I should begin today uh, with a solo rendition of I Often Go Walking. Uh, but as a Mother's Day present to you uh, and to my mother as well, I'm not going to do that. But I am uh, instead, in lieu of that, uh, I'm going to share with you what may be the all-time greatest Mother's Day poem uh, by Billy Collins. This poem is uh, entitled, The Lanyard. Here you go. The other day I was ricocheting slowly off the blue walls of this room, moving as if underwater from typewriter to piano from bookshelf to an envelope lying on the floor, when I found myself in the L section of the dictionary, where my eyes fell upon the word lanyard. No cookie nibbled by a French novelist could send one into the past more suddenly, a past where I sat at a workbench at a camp by a deep Adirondack lake, learning how to braid the long, thin plastic strips into a lanyard, a gift for my mother. I had never seen anyone use a lanyard or wear one, if that's what you did with them, but that did not keep me from crossing strand over strand again and again until I had made a boxy red and white lanyard for my mother. She gave me life and milk from her breasts, and I gave her a lanyard. She nursed me in many a sick room, lifted spoons of medicine to my lips, laid cold face cloths on my forehead and then led me out into the airy light and taught me to walk and swim. And I, in turn, presented her with a lanyard. Here are thousands of meals, she said. Here is clothing and a good education. And here is your lanyard, I replied, which I made with a little help from a counselor. Here is a breathing body and a beating heart, strong legs, bones and teeth, and two clear eyes to read the world, she whispered. And here, I said, is the lanyard I made at camp. And here, I wish to say to her now, is a smaller gift. Not the worn truth that you can never repay your mother, but the rueful admission that when she took the two-tone lanyard from my hand, I was as sure as a boy could be that this useless, worthless thing I wove out of boredom would be enough to make us even. Billy Collins, the lanyard. She gave me life, my mother. I gave her a lanyard. 
Uh, let me see if I can share with you my screen here. I've got some slides for you. Oh, it actually says here that my host has disabled the attendee screen sharing. Can you help me out with that, Michael? Right now. There we go. Okay, do you see that? Not yet. There you are, Dave. Yeah, there I am. You're listening to him? It says screen sharing has built to start. Let me back out and try again. Yeah, I'd like to be able to put him full screen, and I don't know how to do it. There we go. Do you see that now? Yep. You got that, Michael? Yes. Okay, can you hear me now? I think we got a screen. I think we got we got audio for me both, Michael. You got it. Okay, good. You got you got a screen and audio. We're hearing. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Technically, our block of scripture for today is uh, Mosiah 11 through 17, uh, but I'm going to narrow our focus really to just uh, 12 through 15, uh, and especially just the first half of chapter 15. Uh, it's this first chap of, first half of chapter 15 where uh, Abedinai gives us those really beautiful and famously unorthodox verses about how God himself is going to come down among the children of men and he's going to be both the father and the son. Now, as far as I can tell, uh, the Book of Mormon doesn't care one whit about our debates with Protestants and Catholics about uh, the nature of the God, uh, nature of the Godhead, uh, or the notions of uh, the Trinity. Uh, I think the Book of Mormon, on its own terms, is doing an entirely different thing. I think it's pretty clear that uh, in context. What Abinadi is doing here at the beginning of Mosiah chapter 15 is that number one, he's giving us an explanation of Isaiah 53, which he's just quoted. We'll come back to that. And two, he's giving us an actual explanation of how it is that God went about breaking the bands of death. That's what I've chosen for the title of my remarks today. Thus God breaketh the bands of death. And even by extension, I think what he's giving us in these opening verses of Mosiah chapter 15 is that Abinadi is giving us an explanation of how you and I can do the same thing, how we too, like God, can break the bands of death. We'll get to all that, though, in a moment. First, here's a picture of me and my wife and our daughter, Samantha who has now grown and has left the home, uh, on our graduation day from BYU so long ago that uh, still in black and white. How long ago this happened? My uh, bachelor's degree from BYU is in literature, and I spent four years studying poetry. 
Uh, and uh, the only way that you can get your parents to be relieved when you announce to them that you are going to graduate school to study philosophy uh, is that if you have spent the prior four years uh, in a college studying poetry. If you spend four years studying poetry and then announce you're going to study philosophy, then your parents will look at each other and say, finally, he's growing up and making some practical decisions. But there's no other route that you can take to get that response to your parents, uh, from your parents to your decision to go to graduate school to study philosophy. Now, this uh, picture of me uh, is not with my wife or my daughter or my father. This is a picture of me with uh, my dissertation director at Villanova, where I studied philosophy. Uh, and it took me so long to finish uh, my dissertation work at Villanova that uh, this picture, unlike the former one, is in Keller. Now, the black, previous one, black and white. Uh, but all my work uh, at uh, Villanova in philosophy taught me not just to love poetry, like we get in Isaiah, but it taught me especially to love arguments. It taught me to love uh, explanations. Uh, and it taught me to learn to look, especially in scripture, for explanations of things. Uh, so here's your scripture reading tip uh, for the week. I assume you're getting one of these every week from whoever is teaching these lessons. Uh, your scripture reading tip for the week is look for reasons and explanations in the scriptures. Why is X the case? Look for words like because or since or so or thus or therefore. Uh, uh, and your challenge for the next week is to spend the next week scouring your scriptures, uh, whatever it is that you're reading, looking for explanatory words like this and keeping a running list. And when you come across a because or a sense or a thus or a therefore, uh, forcing yourself to stop uh, and to go back and reconstruct what has just been explained in what way by what. Uh, and I think that uh, part of the beauty of this, number one, is that not only will it key you into the kinds of explanations so that you're actually being given in the scriptures, uh, but that it will key you into the fact that many of the explanations given in the scriptures uh, are a little bit surprising. Uh, that the logic being presented in the scriptures of how the different pieces of the gospel fit together uh, don't always neatly line up with what we go in expecting them to look like. Uh, and this, I think, can be a key to learning some new and interesting things. In this respect, perhaps the all-time greatest example of an explanation in the scriptures, perhaps especially in the Book of Mormon, uh, is what we get here in Mosiah chapter 15, verse 8, uh, where Abinadi, uh, I added the exclamation mark here, but where Abinadi says, and thus, and thus, God breaketh the bands of death. Now, when I see a word like that in the scriptures, when I see a, a phrase like that, it rings me like a bell. Uh, and when I hear it connected to something like, and thus God breaks the bands of death, uh, I hear air raid sirens going off. Uh, and it really draws my attention and it sucks me in. Uh, and the work I want to do here today is mostly to work backwards from this climactic moment uh, in Mosiah chapter 15, verse 8. Uh, where Abednego proclaims, and thus God breaks the bands of death, to work backwards from there and to see what the steps are that led us to that moment. What is the explanation that leads eventually to this conclusion that this is how God broke the bands of death? So I'm going to do this on, I'm going to do this on two levels here, right? At, uh, 
cheating here, a little bit of a spoiler alert. Uh, the short answer to the question of how God breaks the bands of death is that he breaks the bands of death by way of consecration. Now, this is not a word Abinadi uses here uh, anywhere in uh, Mosiah 11 through 17, but it is a word, I think, that neatly captured what's at, what's at stake, uh, especially in ultimately his description of God in Mosiah chapter 15. I'm going to run you through the short answer here of God breaking the bands of death by way of consecration. First, in terms of a little overview, some context here through the whole of Mosiah 12 through 15, in which Abinadi describes the greatest of all as being the least of all. We could describe this as the kind of uh, the political version uh, of his explanation of how God breaks the bands of death by way of consecration. And then I'm going to do it a second time. Uh, in a little more in a little more detail, looking closely at those verses that immediately precede his proclamation uh, at the beginning of Isaiah 15, which we could call a kind of theological version here uh, of what consecration looks like. So we'll get the same story here, the same story of consecration on two levels, a political version and a theological version. Before I get into that, though, I want to throw out a question that you can consider in the chat box uh, while I run you through the political version here. Uh, and the question I want you to attempt to answer, if, you, if you'd like to participate in the chat box here, the question is, uh, what is consecration? And in particular, what does consecration have to do with being disowned? What does consecration have to do with being disowned? So you can chew on this a little bit, offer some answers in the chat box. I'm going to run you through the political version of consecration, uh, and then we'll come back to this in a little bit here, and we'll see, we'll see uh, uh, if my dialogue team here can curate some interesting answers for us to this question. Okay. So first version here. Here's an overview uh, of Mosiah uh, 12 through 15. Uh, all of the Abinadi's trial here is framed essentially as a challenge to interpret Isaiah 52. The trial unfolds here as a kind of uh, battle over Isaiah, a kind of Isaiah off, a kind of uh, poetry level ancient Hebrew rap battle about who is the correct uh, who is the correct interpretation here of Isaiah 52. Uh, so the it's Noah's own priests who challenge Abinadi to interpret Isaiah 52. Abinadi uh, responds by quoting the Ten Commandments to them. He then claims that the commandments cannot save us. Uh, he quotes Isaiah 53 to show that salvation comes instead by way of what, he, by way of what Isaiah describes as the suffering servant. Uh, then he adds his own explanation of Isaiah 53 in Mosiah 15, uh, culminating in that claim that this is how God breaks the bands of death. And then Abinadi interprets Isaiah 52 in light of Isaiah 53. Now let's get these, let's get these verses from Isaiah 52 on the table here. Uh, these verses from Isaiah 52 that are uh, at stake in the trial read like this. They're pretty famous verses. How beautiful Upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, thy God reigneth. 
Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice. With the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. Break forth into joy. Sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord hath comforted his people. He hath redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So what's the story here with these verses then? Why Isaiah? And why do King Noah's priests kick off their interrogation of Abinadi with a challenge uh, to interpret these particular verses from Isaiah? Now, my colleague, Joseph Spencer, uh, who teaches in the Department of Ancient Scripture at BYU, and who is, in my estimation, the world's leading authority on the Book of Mormon, uh, has a theory uh, about why these verses uh, are chosen by King Noah's priests uh, as the grounds for interrogating Abinadi. Uh, and I find it pretty persuasive, his theory here. But in order to explain the theory, we're going to need a little bit of Book of Mormon geography, uh, which is why I have for you on this next slide a little map that I drew for my kids last week. Uh, now, this map I totally made up, essentially. Uh, based on, based on uh, John Sorison's work about the internal geography of the Book of Mormon. Uh, this, uh, this map here, uh, well, let me say, I think there's two interesting things about Book of Mormon geography. Uh, and the one interesting thing about Book of Mormon geography is that uh, we have no idea how Book of Mormon geography, as described in the Book of Mormon, maps onto anything in the real world. Uh, but number two interesting fact about Book of Mormon geography, I think, is the degree to which the Book of Mormon seems to be really consistent in terms of its internal descriptions uh, of, of how the different elements of the Book of Mormon geography fit together. Uh, and so though it's difficult to map it onto the real world, uh, it's not hard, I think, to construct a map uh, of, uh, in terms of the internal description of how the pieces fit together. So you get three main, as I was explaining to my children, you get, uh, you get three main, I don't know if you can see my mouse here, you get three main uh, migrations here uh, to the New World as described by the Book of Mormon. On the one hand, whoops, let's go back here. On the one hand, you get the Jaredites uh, coming to uh, America around the time of the Tower of Babel, uh, and they settle here in these northern lands that the Book of Mormon people, that the Nephites and Lamanites eventually refer to as the land of desolation. Then you get Nephi and Lehi and Laman and Lemuel and company uh, migrating to the New World just before the city of Jerusalem is destroyed. And they settle down here in what's called the land of first inheritance. Uh, eventually, not long after they get here, uh, Nephi and company uh, have to split off from the Lamanites and they go north here and establish their own colony here in the land of Nephi and leave the land of first inheritance behind. Uh, then you get a third migration here of the Mulekites, uh, who come separate from the Nephites and Lamanites, but don't bring any scripture with them. They also migrate from Jerusalem just about the time of the destruction, uh, and they land in the New World, and they start a little colony that's known as the land of Zarahemla. So you got, uh, you got a couple, basically a couple different pieces here. The land of first inheritance, which is home base for the Lamanites, the land of Nephi, which was the home base for the Nephites. You get the land of Zarahemla, which is the home base for the Mulekites. 
and then you get the land of desolation up here, which was originally the home base for the Jaredites. Around 225 BC, Mosiah leads everyone who is willing to go with him on the basis of a prophecy out of the land of Nephi, and they discover these Mulekites up here in the land of Zarahemla, and they merge together with these uh, Mulekites in the land of Zarahemla, and Mosiah and his son Benjamin and his son Mosiah then become the, uh, the leaders of this kind of uh, uh, combined group of Nephites and Mulekites that are then just known by the name of Nephites. Now, all of that is just, to, is just to set up the fact that everything that we get here in the story of Limhi uh, and King Noah uh, and Zenith, all of that story is about Zenith uh, leading a group of people back from the land of Zarahemla to try to reclaim here what was originally Nephite lands that were ceded to the Lamanites when Mosiah left. The point here is then, well, let me go back for just a second. The point here is then that uh, when it comes, to understanding why King Noah and his priests bring up Isaiah 52 as the key point that has to be properly interpreted in their trial of Abinadi. Uh, the key point is that Noah and company see themselves, uh, my Joe Spencer's theory goes, Noah and company see themselves as fulfilling this prophecy, the prophecy of Isaiah 52, that they have brought again Zion uh, by reclaiming the promised lands that is, the lands of Nephi, the land that Mosiah and company abandoned when they went to uh, uh, northward and joined the Mulekites in the land of Zarahemla. And what you get here then is you get uh, King Noah and his priests essentially offering a kind of political litmus test for Abinadi, whether he's going to correctly interpret those verses from Isaiah 52 uh, as referring to them, as referring to King Noah and his priests as fulfilling that prophecy. As, though, as them being the messengers uh, who have successfully revealed the arm of God, uh, reclaimed Zion by reclaiming the land of promise here in the land of Nephi, uh, and thus uh, having tied themselves to that kind of uh, line of authority from God by fulfilling the prophecy. Now, Abinadi, of course, uh, doesn't go along with any of this at all. Abinadi responds uh, to their challenge to interpret Isaiah 52 correctly by asking them why they don't know the answer to this question. What have they been teaching the people? They claim to have been teaching the law of Moses. Abinadi says, well, if you've been teaching the law of Moses, does salvation even come by the law of Moses? Uh, they say yes. He claims eventually after running through all of the law of Moses then that salvation does not come by the law alone and that were it not for the atonement, they must unavoidably perish. Uh, it's a little bit tricky here moving from uh, Mosiah 12 all the way to Mosiah 13, uh, because there's a whole chapter in between when Abedadai originally asks the question whether you can be saved by the law of Moses until he finally gets around to saying that, no, you can't just be saved by the law alone. And it's, response then, it's in response then to his claim that you can't just be saved by the law alone, that Abinadi quotes Isaiah 53 as the key to understanding what Isaiah 52 is actually about. And Isaiah 53, of course, uh, probably the most famous chapter in all of Isaiah, in which Isaiah gives his messianic prophecy of the suffering servant. Uh, he describes uh, how uh, 
the suffering servant was despised and rejected of men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was wounded for our transgressions. Uh, his soul was made an offering for sin. Uh, and that would allow him in the end to see his seed. Right? Those are those famous verses from Isaiah 53. And those verses from Isaiah 53 and Abinadi's mind are the key to understanding who actually will fulfill the prophecy uh, of reclaiming Zion as outlined in Isaiah 52. It's also the key then to understanding what we get then in Mosiah chapter 15, uh, where Abinadi offers his explanation of the story of the suffering servant in terms of those verses about God himself coming down among the children of men and being both the father and the son. So what we get here, I think, in this first run through in this kind of larger contextual account uh, of what the whole of Abinadi's trial is about, uh, is we, we get Abinadi claiming that Noah and his priests fulfilled the prophecy to bring again Zion as outlined in Isaiah 52, even though they positioned themselves in fulfillment of it, because they are not the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And they are not the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 because they are not suffering servants, period. Uh, they have not positioned themselves as being the greatest of all because they are the servants of all. They have instead positioned themselves as being the greatest of all because they're the greatest of all which is to say here that Abinadi, he introduces a different model for leadership uh, that's based on consecration, in which the greatest of all are those who disown themselves of their power and become the servants of all. And because no one in his priests haven't done that, because they've kept the power for themselves rather than disowning themselves of that power to become servants, uh, they are not those who are fulfilling the prophecy given in Isaiah 52. That, I think... Uh, at, a kind of a, at a kind of larger contextual level is what is going on uh, in general with Abinadi's trial. And that brings me back to the question that you were uh, thinking about and writing about uh, in the chat box, potentially, though I haven't paid any attention to this I've been talking. Uh, uh, what is consecration? Uh, what thoughts do you have about this? And what does consecration in particular, what does that have to do with being disowned? Uh, what, what do we got out there? Do we got any, we got some, you, have you found some good ones to share? Yeah, let, let, let us break in from the, from reading the chat. As I see it, we're pretty quick to come to an answer to what is consecration, that that has a sense of offering made to God or offering made to someone, a, a, a commitment or a giving or, or an offering. Uh, the uh, second question of what does it have to do with being disowned generates a lot of interesting conversation and, and self-questioning that, that leads to uh, a, a number of thoughts about consecration requiring an, an alternative. There always being an alternative. What are we doing instead of? You're giving up something. You're moving away from what would have been to God or to the, the, that to which you are consecrating. So you're giving up your self-ownership. You're giving up your ownership of um, control of the situation or of yourself or of the um, object that you are consecrating. 
that's there's a there's a giving up or an alternative that that comes through as as we collectively have been musing over what it what it has to do with being disowned yeah good i think i think you, i think that's right on the right track uh, it has especially to do i think with the way that consecration involves uh uh the relinquishment of ownership in our willingness to to offer whatever sacrifice that is uh, to God. Whatever it is that we're consecrating to God involves on our part a willingness to to be disowned of that thing that we had previously claimed as our own. So that if I'm claiming, uh, if I'm claiming a particular, if I'm claiming property as my own, uh, then it involves my relinquishing ownership of that property to God. Uh, if it's time that I'm claiming as my own, that it, a consecration then involves my relinquishing that time to God my ownership of that time. If it's power that's at stake, uh, then it involves my relinquishing that power to God. Or even uh, in a more holistic fashion, if it's my life itself that I'm attempting to consecrate, then that act of consecration will involve my willingness to relinquish ownership of my own life. Uh, that in an important sense here, consecrating my life will involve being disowned of my own life. My life will no longer be my own to the degree that I successfully consecrate it. So let's run, th let's run through this story then again uh, a second time, uh, the story of consecration a second time on a kind of smaller, more detailed level uh, in relationship to those opening verses of Mosiah chapter 15. Those famous and beautiful and uh, often unorthodox uh, seen as un unorthodox verses at the beginning of Mosiah 15. So what we get here, I think, at the beginning of Mosiah 15 is, is a Benedi's account uh, of how the Father and Son are one God. Uh, but I think that this isn't just a description of how he saves us, though it is also that, but it's also a description of what being saved looks like. What we get here in the beginning of Mosiah 15, and I, th I think, is a description of what salvation looks like as it unfolds inside of God, inside of God himself, in relationship to himself. And there's something about how God relates to himself. There's something there uh, that explains how he breaks the bands of death and brings about our salvation. And there's something that if we see how he does that, uh, that it becomes possible for us to participate in breaking the bands of death and do this same thing. Or in other words, we can say, uh, Abedadai's account of how the Father and the Son are one God, I think, is a description of a redemptive process through which God disowns himself of himself and thereby shows us how to do the same. Which is to say, I don't think these verses have much of anything to do with debates about the nature of the Godhead or Trinity, uh, at least as we normally think about it, and instead have everything to do with this actual process of breaking the bands of death. So let's start here in Mosiah uh, chapter 15, verse 1, uh, where we get uh, Abinadi explaining how God himself shall come down among the children of men uh, and redeem his people, being the father and the son. Now, that's the part that we normally trip up on a little bit. Uh, but I want to just emphasize here, first of all, the uh, initial formulation that we get God here described as God himself coming down among the children of men. That himself, I think, is important here because it signals 
It signals a moment in the story of God's life where God gets put in relationship to himself. We could say what we get here is not God just being God, uh, but when God gets put into relationship to himself, then we have God uh, defined in terms of the Father and the Son. It's when God himself comes into the picture relating to himself by coming down among the children of men that we talk about him not just as God, but we talk about him as being both the Father and the Son. So we could offer a little diagram of this. Uh, I'm a philosopher. I like diagrams. Uh, if you weren't interested in diagrams or hearing from a philosopher this morning, then I'm not sure why you signed up for this in the first place. Uh, God, there's God himself. I mean, there's God, just God. God himself in relationship to himself uh, is understood as a relationship between the Father and the Son, which is to say, I don't think these verses are describing a relationship between two different people. This is describing a relationship uh, internal to God between himself as the Father and himself as the Son. That I think pretty clearly is what uh, Abinadi is saying, which means the Abinadi's way of talking here doesn't line up very neatly with the way that we normally talk about the Father and the Son, uh, which is fine. Uh, So this is step one, God in relationship to himself has redoubled himself uh, into the figures of both the father and the son. In the verses that follow here, uh, what we get are a whole series of parallel constructions. Uh, I've picked out a couple of the most important ones here uh, from Mosiah 15, five to, and then eventually uh, 17. I think that actually should be seven though, not seven, maybe that's 17. Uh, uh, a whole series of parallel constructions here where the key phrases get repeated uh, and linked together to show us what it is that Abinadi means by the Father and what it is he means by the Son. So I think if we take, if we take the Father first here, uh, you'll notice that the Father, the figure of the Father, gets aligned uh, with a couple key other figures. First of all, the, the Father is aligned with what he calls the will of the Father, and the will of the Father is aligned in turn with what he calls the Spirit. So in 15.5, you get a phrase like, the flesh here becomes subject to the Spirit. Uh, or in 15.2, similarly, having subjected the flesh to the will of the Father. So you see how these two different verses, uh, by way of the flesh, braid together the idea of the Father with the idea of Spirit. Uh, and again, in something like uh, 1517, you get a phrase like, the flesh becoming subject even unto death, the will of the son being swallowed up in the will such that uh, perhaps a little bit surprisingly, what you get is the father aligned with spirit and also aligned with the will of the father being that the, that the flesh becomes subject even unto death. So if we were to add this to our diagram, we get, I think, uh, a picture of something like this. God relating to himself uh, is redoubled in the figures of the Father and the Son. Uh, and the figure of the Father, uh, as, uh, as this internal dimension of God, is aligned with spirit and is aligned with death. Uh, now, this is spirit here, I think, not in the sense of Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost, but this is spirit here pretty clearly, I think, meant as part of the pair 
uh, of flesh and spirit. If we come back to these same verses to fill in the other side of the diagram, uh, we see that the sun, the will of the sun, is aligned with the flesh, right? In the same way that the will of the sun is swallowed up in the will of the father, or the will of the sun becomes subject to the will of the father, in that same way, the flesh becomes subject to the spirit. Uh, I think pretty clearly those terms are neatly aligned. Uh, though the, the term that's uh, the third term that's missing here uh, in opposition to death, uh, I think is pretty clearly life. So on the one hand, you get the father aligned with the spirit and aligned with death, uh, and you get the you get the son aligned with flesh uh, and with life. And the story of the drama of salvation has to do with the way that inside of God, the spirit and the flesh become related to one another. Or the spirit, the drama of salvation here has to do with the way that inside of God, death, the story of death and the story of life get related to one another. So if we look here, if we come back to these same verses again, we also get a pretty clear description of how these elements of God, internal to God, are related to each other. Uh, the flesh becomes subject to the spirit, having subjected the flesh to the will of the Father. Or the flesh becomes subject even unto death, the will of the Son being swallowed up in the will of the Father. So we get here, we get here this description of the way that the Son is related to the Father uh, by way of becoming subject. God's going to break the bands of death here, by subjecting the will of the Son to the will of the Father. Or we could say, he's, oh, uh, let me go back for, well, actually, let's get this next verse in here. Uh, if, we, if we take a closer look at, at 15.5, uh, if we draw in the whole rest of that description from 15.5, uh, it begins the way that we, with the part that we've already looked at. Uh, Thus the flesh becoming subject to the Spirit, or the Son to the Father, being one God, suffereth temptation and yieldeth not to the temptation, but suffers himself to be mocked and scourged and cast out and disowned by his people. Now you notice that we've, uh, we've introduced the key word here by the end of uh, verse 5 in chapter 15. Uh, but we've also, I think, gotten a pretty clear description uh, of another way that we can understand what it means for the flesh to become subject to the spirit. What does it mean for the flesh to become subject to the spirit? Right? It's introduced here by the or. Uh, or it's the same thing as saying uh, that the son suffers temptation and yields not to the temptation. That, I think, is a pretty good description of what it means to become subject. To become subject to something else uh, is to suffer it, but not to yield entirely to it. So I think we could fill in that here uh, as well. The son becomes subject to the father when the flesh suffers without yielding the spirit uh, by exposing itself to death. Or if we come back here again to that same verse in chapter, uh, in chapter 15, verse 5, uh, we could fill out that description, I think, just by running through the end of the verse. What does it look like to suffer, some to suffer temptation and to yield not to the temptation? It looks like suffering yourself to be mocked and scourged and cast out. Or in other words, suffering without yielding looks like being disowned. 
it looks like what happens when Christ gets disowned by his own people uh, and is no longer claimed by them. And that, I think, uh, is the third term I want to introduce here as a, as a way of describing this relationship between the Son and the Father, internal to God himself, that describes how the bands of death are broken. The bands of death are broken when the flesh suffers death without yielding to it. And that is also, I think, a pretty good description of consecration. When death is suffered without being yielded to, then death, rather than destroying life, simply disowns us of life and thus sets life free from our attempt to own it. This is the drama as it unfolds internal to the life of God, that God, by exposing himself to death, by suffering death without yielding to it, disowns himself of his own life and sets himself free uh, from his attempt to own it, and in the process, breaks those bands of death. And that's what you call consecration. Thus, God breaketh the bands of death. That's how he does it. Uh, the model for this, I think, is something like baptism, right? Uh, as Abinadi unfolds it there, uh, it, the story is a little bit complicated, but I think the story is really a very familiar one. Uh, in baptism, I subject myself to the will of the Father by going down into a watery grave, and I suffer an early death. But I don't just yield to death. Though I suffer death, I don't just yield to it. This death doesn't destroy me. Instead, it just disowns me. Raised from the water, I'm returned to life, but now my life is not my own. It belongs instead to Christ. So baptism, I think, recounts the same story of this internal drama of the way that my ex by exposing myself to death, by suffering death early and willingly by way of baptism, uh, my, death no, my death no longer holds me captive, but instead my death is, and becomes a kind of door through which I pass that disowns me of my own life, uh, gives my life back to me, but now as something that belongs not to me, but as something that belongs instead to God. Death here becomes a kind of mechanism by which I consecrate my life to God. Uh, it becomes the kind of machinery for doing that if I can suffer it without yielding to it. If I can allow that death to disown me rather than just destroy me. What happens here in the drama of salvation, I think, is that death gets repurposed for the purposes of consecration so that we can be liberated from it. And the model, pretty straightforwardly, uh, is baptism. And that, I think, is what consecration looks like. And if we were trying to try to offer a description, uh, a kind of internal description of what that process of, of uh, being transformed from the inside out looks like, uh, it looks like that. It looks like us doing the very same thing that God himself did by relating his flesh to his spirit, by relating his life to his death in this very particular way that disowns itself by suffering without yielding to death. So this is my, this is my kind of uh, final question I want to, to, to reflect on for a minute here uh, and uh, respond to in the chat box, if you'd like. Uh, can you give a concrete, practical example, being a little less philosophical here for a moment now, uh, of something that you might do tomorrow to consecrate your life and no longer treat it as your own? 
Can you give a concrete practical example of something you might actually in real life do tomorrow uh, in which you would dis by which you would uh, disown yourself of yourself? Now let me give you let me give you one example here uh, while you reflect on that for a minute and generate a couple examples of your own. So uh, Friday was for me. Uh, the last day of classes. Uh, this is the week of final exams here uh, at the college where I teach. Uh, and when I wake up tomorrow morning, I'm going to have a big pile of grades waiting, a big pile of papers waiting to be graded in the morning. Do I want to grade these papers? Is that my will? Uh, is that the will of my flesh to grade these papers? Uh, no. If grading these papers tomorrow morning, I'm dreading it, in fact, a little bit. If grading this giant stack of papers in the morning is about what I want, uh, then I will spend the day tomorrow feeling resentful uh, and impatient because I will feel like time that ought to have been my own has been commandeered by many of the poorly written artifacts that my students have submitted. I'll feel like I'm being robbed of something that should have belonged to me in the first place. And in result, I'll, I'll feel resentful and impatient and uh, I'll grade angry, which is not the best way to grade, at least for the students. Uh, so what happens, what has to happen instead is that uh, if I'm going to consecrate my work tomorrow, what I have to do instead is to become subject to these papers. All these papers that I need to grade, I need to suffer them, uh, but without quite yielding to them. I have to become, uh, as uh, Abednego and Isaiah described in Isaiah 53, I have to become the suffering servant of these papers tomorrow. And I have to let those papers disown me of myself so that I can give myself to the work of grading them. And if I can do that, uh, then instead of being held captive by my resentment and impatience, I can break the bands of death, hand my life over to the work, uh, and proceed uh, through that work with love and peace and attention and care. Uh, and that, I think, from the inside out, uh, on a kind of very uh, minimal, uh, small-scale daily basis is what the drama of salvation looks like. On a daily basis, the drama of salvation looks like me consecrating my life by allowing the work to be done to disown me of myself so that I can give myself to that work with care and love and patience. And that I think is what uh, Ben and I was describing in the beginning of Isaiah 15. All right, do we have, uh, do we have any uh, good examples from the chat box of practical examples of the way that people might consecrate their own lives tomorrow? What do we got? Uh, we have, I'm, I'm hoping Rebecca will chime in here too. We have a number of examples. Some, uh, one reference back to your opening about motherhood, oh, which nice. is an obvious, uh, well, which is presented as an obvious example of, of consecrating one's life to another, to others. Um, <laughs> and, and then you give, and then you return a lanyard and it's all square. <laughs> And then you return a lanyard. Um, marriage, as an example of consecrating um, one's life to a 
relationship, a, 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 an other. Um, uh, looking for other examples. Um, <laughs> I'm chuckling here with disowning sleeping in time to be more diligent with my academic study. Nice, 5.30 rolls around, time to disown yourself of your claim to sleep. Uh, as, a, as a college professor who procrastinates grading, I relate to your example of consecration. I hope I can aspire to that. Well, I, I hope I can aspire to it. Too. This, is a, this, is, this is an optimal scenario tomorrow. We'll see if I can pull it off. Any others? Um, uh, some folks um, talking about um, consecrating themselves to working for um, social justice, for making a difference in relationship to the COVID-19 challenges, nice. um, being willing to listen to whatever the spirit is dictating on a daily basis and um, what they're being asked to do uh, kind of in the moment to consecrate their lives. I'd, I'd, like, I'd like to pick up that example, the COVID-19 example of, of um, sheltering in place, of wearing a mask as being uh, about serving others, about making things better for others, as opposed to um, directly uh, benefiting oneself. Yeah, it could it could be very powerful to take up the simple acts of social solidarity as as acts of consecration, as putting putting on a mask as a gesture of uh, of me disowning myself. Right? Yeah. Nice. Uh, thanks. Thanks for sharing those. Uh, let me just wrap up by saying that. Uh, I hope my prayer is uh, that God will help us to learn how to do here what he himself did. Uh, that God will empower us to come down among the children of men uh, and to suffer our flesh, uh, to suffer death in the flesh without yielding to it in a way that will disown us of ourselves, free us from the bands of death, and empower us to care for and love other people. Uh, in the mold of that suffering servant. Uh, and I leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Brother Miller, Adam, thank you so much for this lesson and the cause to think and reflect that we've had today. Um, as a closing prayer, we've, been, we've invited, asked Kalani Tonga to offer closing prayer. Uh, Kalani is an artist, writer, activist. Today, perhaps her greatest claim to fame is a mother of five and uh, also a contributor to dialogue, which is one of the primary ways that you get involved in these programs. And so um, I would like to ask Kalani Tonga to offer closing prayer. Father in heaven, we bow our heads before thee this day to give thanks for the many blessings that we have received. 
We're thankful for the opportunity to gather virtually this morning, and we're thankful for Brother Miller's insight and his willingness to share his wisdom with us. We ask that we will be comforted during these isolating and unpredictable times. And we ask as we deal with the current global situation that we may be granted greater compassion as we grapple with our own shortcomings and also as we interact with those around us. Help us to seek first to understand the life circumstances of others before seeking to be understood and help us to use that understanding to reach out with compassion. And, we, and as we seek comfort, we ask for opportunities to be the answer to other prayers for relief. <clears throat> help us to be generous and gentle with ourselves and to be generous and gentle in our interactions with others. Bless us as we offer up the talents and resources we've been afforded that we may be consecrated for, that they may be consecrated for the benefit of those who need it most. And help us to continually look for ways to lift those around us with an eye toward elevating the most vulnerable and using our privileges to create a more just and joyful world. Again, we're thankful for our ability to connect with each other and with the divine on this beautiful day. And we ask for guidance as we seek to extend this connection in other areas of our lives and strive to see all of those around us as cherished friends and family members. We love thee and we say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. As a reminder, thank you everybody for participating and joining us today. Uh, this session has been recorded and will be posted later. Uh, it has also been live streamed to Facebook. We will um, have another session of the Dialogue Sunday Gospel Study next Sunday uh, with Fiona Givens talking and teaching to us uh, from Mosiah 18 verses uh, 18 through 24. Thank you all. Thanks.